Please turn to the back of your hymn book, page 907. 907. I'm going to read articles 5 and 6. Article 5, the inadequacy of the law. In this respect, what is true of the light of nature, if you just back up there to Article 4, the beginning of Article 4, there is to be sure a certain light of nature remaining in man after the fall by virtue of which he retains some notions about God, natural things, and the difference between what is moral and immoral. So that's the description there of the light of nature, going down to Article 5. In this respect, what is true of the light of nature is true also of the Ten Commandments given by God through Moses specifically to the Jews. For man cannot obtain saving grace through the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Because, although it does expose the magnitude of his sin and increasingly convict him of his guilt, yet it does not offer a remedy or enable him to escape from his misery, and indeed, weakened as it is by the flesh, leaves the offender under the curse. Article 6, the saving power of the gospel. What therefore neither the light of nature nor the law can do, God accomplishes by the power of the Holy Spirit through the word or the ministry of reconciliation. This is the gospel about the Messiah, through which it has pleased God to save believers in both the Old and the New Testament. Now let's open our Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. I want to read to you verses 9 through 20 of Romans 3. I encourage you to keep it open once again. Romans 3, 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So, Father, reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word.
Thousands of years ago, there was a man who asked a very important question. The man's name was Job, and this was his question. How can a man be righteous before God? How can a man be righteous before God? Have you ever wrestled with that question? There are millions of people in this world who have no answer, or they have a wrong answer. And there are millions of people who don't bother even considering the question at all. How can a man be righteous before God? The Bible declares that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In the third chapter of Romans, the Apostle Paul emphatically stated that everybody in the world is under sin, under its sway and power. In verses 10 through 18, there are six Old Testament quotations supporting this. Six citations proving Paul's statement that all are under sin. And then in verses 19 and 20, we find a summary statement repeating the fact that the whole world is guilty before God and everyone in the world is worthy of God's judgment. There is not even a single individual who can raise a legitimate objection against God's judgment. Every mouth will be stopped. Mouths that try to raise objections against God will be silenced. Well, then how can a man be righteous before God? Before we answer that question, I want us to consider these two very important verses of Romans 3, verses 19 and 20. Let's look at our Bibles and read them again, 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty or held accountable before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. I want us to focus on three things. Number one, the importance of God's law. Number two, the rejection of God's law. And number three, the purpose of God's law. First, the law's importance. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. What is the law spoken of in verse 19? In the Bible, the word law can be referring to a number of things. Law is used when speaking of the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments. It's also used for the book of Deuteronomy. It is used in a broader sense still for the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. And it's also used for the whole of the Old Testament. Here in Romans 3.19, the word law probably refers to the Old Testament as a whole. Now, the reason I say that is because the Old Testament quotations in verses 10 through 18 come from various parts of the Old Testament, from Psalms, from Ecclesiastes, and from Isaiah. Sometimes law is synonymous with the Old Testament, and that seems to be the case here in verse 19. Now, when the Bible speaks of the law whether it is the Ten Commandments, the book of Deuteronomy, the five books of Moses, or the entire Old Testament, it always highlights its importance. For example, 
Psalm 19 says, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. God's law is precious, valuable, and extremely important. It sets the standard for humanity. It is his will for creation. God's will for mankind is summarized in the Ten Commandments and even further summarized in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, where Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. That is God's standard for human life. And within the boundaries of his law, there is happiness, meaning, and security for the human race. Allow me to illustrate this for a moment. Once when we were on vacation, I was sitting at the water's edge as the sun was just beginning to go down. About 30 or so feet out from the shore, there was a raft floating in the water. As I sat there looking across the water, a fish suddenly jumped from the water and landed right on the raft. Now, a fish is created by God to thrive in water. A fish on a dry raft cannot thrive and cannot survive. The moment that fish landed on the raft, he could sense that he was in trouble, deep trouble. He flipped and flopped along the raft trying to find water. That fish was outside the boundaries of God's design for a fish. If he remained on that raft, it would mean certain death. God has set certain boundaries for a fish, and to cross those boundaries means trouble. When a fish jumps out of the environment that God has created for him, he cannot prosper. Congregation, that is how the Bible describes the law of God for the human race. You are God's creatures, and you are created to thrive within a certain environment. As a fish thrives in water, so man lives and thrives within the boundaries of God's law. When we love God above all, and our neighbor as ourself, then we are living according to the design of our Maker. But when we transgress the law, any part of God's word, then we become like a fish flopping around on a dry raft. And that kind of life always leads to exhaustion, misery, and death. Boys and girls, you know the first psalm, don't you? We sang it a moment ago. What does Psalm 1 say about the man who delights in God's law? He's like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. When a man delights in God's law, what's the result? He flourishes. But what does Psalm 1 say about the man who does not consider the law to be precious? That man shrivels up. He's like chaff which the wind drives away. Chaff is dry, dusty, and useless. It's good for nothing but to be blown away by the wind. The man who rejects God's law 
is like the fish out of water. When a fish jumps out of the environment that God has created for him, he cannot prosper. And when man crosses the boundaries that God has designed for him, he cannot prosper. That's why the psalmist said in Psalm 119, Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. The psalmist understood what is good for man. When we live by God's standard, we reap daily practical blessings. Blessings at home. Blessings in the family, blessings in our marriage, blessings in the field, blessings in our relationships, blessings in our worship, and blessings in our fellowship with God. When you love God above all, and your neighbor as yourself, you are living according to God's design for humanity. There's no better place to be. Within his fence, there is safety, peace, fulfillment, and true liberty. Therefore, the law of God is extremely important, for it defines the limits within which God is honored and man is blessed. However, notice what our text says about the rejection of God's law. Number two, the rejection of God's law. Read again at verse 19. Have a look. 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped. What does verse 19 mean when it speaks of those who are under the law? There are some differences as to how theologians understand this. Some believe that this is referring to the Jews. That it's referring to the Jews, those who receive the Old Testament scriptures, the oracles of God. There are others who believe that those who are under the law is a reference to all people everywhere. This is supported by the fact that Paul goes on in the same breath to speak of all the world, end of verse 19, and every mouth stopped. It seems to me that this latter interpretation is correct. Those who are under the law, verse 19, are both Jews and Gentiles. All people everywhere are bound to the obligations and demands of the law. But because all men everywhere have rejected the requirements of the law, all the world stands guilty before God, end of verse 19. Everybody in the entire world is guilty. I am guilty. You are guilty. Your friends are guilty. Your classmates are guilty. Your teachers, your neighbors, your boss, your plumber, your dentist, your feed supplier, everyone. Every person in Europe, Africa, and North America is guilty. You probably don't find that in the public school curriculum or in your university sociology textbook, yet it is an, a, a fact, an important truth. All the world, all people everywhere have departed from God's standard. If you back up to Romans 3, verses 10 through 12, you find these words which we considered several weeks ago. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all 
all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Starting at Romans 1.18, Paul has been proving that the entire human race has departed from God's will. Instead of pleasing God, the human race has resisted Him. Instead of upholding and observing the law, we have all violated in every conceivable way. When you read the list of sins in Romans 1, idolatry, unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, whispering, backbiting, hating God, violence, pride, boasting, inventing evil things, disobedience to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. When you read that long list of sins in Romans 1, you certainly don't get a very positive view of the human condition. Paul insists that both Jews and Gentiles are thoroughly wicked in God's sight. He does not say that all people sin to the same degree. He does not say that every human being has done every bad thing possible. But he does insist that the human race as a whole has become utterly vile in God's sight. And each and every person has the potential within him to commit horrendous sins, atrocious, dreadful offenses. The Apostle Paul concluded that when the standard of the law of God is applied to mankind, all are found to be wanting. All have failed to live for the purpose for which they were created. All have failed to live in obedient and loving fellowship with God and man. All have become worthless before God. Verses 13 through 18 describe the human race as being rotten to the core. Our breath smells like the decomposing flesh in an open grave. And our lives are unprofitable before the face of God. I realize that language is not flattering. But that is the language of Romans 3. Their throat is an open tomb, an open grave. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Verses 13 and 14. In our study some time ago of verses 9 through 18, I posed the question, why does Paul mention the throat, the tongue, the lips, and the mouth? Because that which comes from the mouth reveals the condition of the heart. The heart. If the throat is an open grave... And if the tongue is deceitful, and if the lips and mouth are poisonous and blasphemous, then the heart is utterly corrupt and contrary to the will of God. It is rotten to the core. And that's why Paul says in verse 19, that every mouth may be stopped, every mouth may be silenced, and all the world may become guilty before God, or the whole world held accountable to God. Picture a courtroom where the accused is standing before the judge. The charges are read and the accused is given opportunity to answer the charges. But his mouth is stopped. 
it is silenced. He can say absolutely nothing in his defense, for his guilt has been openly exposed and the charges cannot be denied. His lips tremble, but his mouth is dry like a mouthful of cotton. And his voice remains silent. Well, that's the picture, isn't it? That's the picture that the apostle gives us in verse 19. Only in verse 19, God is the judge. And every person in the whole world stands before him. The charges are read. And the accused are given opportunity to answer. There's not a single person in all the earth who can speak. For all are guilty and none can deny it. All mouths are silent, for everyone knows that they deserve God's just condemnation. Lips may tremble and quiver, but not a single voice is heard. In the courts of our land, people have been falsely charged and falsely accused. And in that case, when opportunity is given to speak, the accused can deny the charges and call upon witnesses to prove his innocence. The accused can talk until all the evidence is presented and his case is dismissed. He has adequately demonstrated his innocence. But congregation, before God, every mouth will be stopped. There are no false charges. There are no untrue accusations. Before God, not a single word can be spoken in our defense. In his exposition of Romans 3, Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse suggested that if there will be any words spoken before the bar of God by those who have rejected the grace of God in this life and are being sent to outer darkness forever, it will be not excuses, but a resentful acknowledgement of the truth of God and the justice of their own condemnation. Their voices will drift off into outer nothingness and there will be silence at last. Congregation, the conclusion of verse 19 is that all have rejected God's law and unredeemed mankind has no defense whatsoever. The final verdict is guilty. No mouth anywhere in the world, from the primitive tribe in South America to the university lecture hall, no mouth anywhere will be able to speak a word against God's judgment. In the courts of our land, there are opportunities to hire high-priced lawyers to represent our case. You'll recall O.J. Simpson hired people like Robert Shapiro and Johnny Cochran and others. His team of lawyers became known as the Dream Team. We can hire such lawyers. And if we fail in one court, we can appeal to a higher court. We can spend hours, days, months, years arguing our case, talking, 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 debating, debating, discussing, and appealing. But brothers and sisters, before the court of God, every mouth is stopped. Not a word can be spoken. 
If there's anyone in our midst this morning who is not a child of God through faith in Jesus and the blood of the cross, I can only say to you that unless you repent, your future is truly terrifying. You will have your day in court. You will be summoned before your judge. You will hear the charges read and you will be speechless, speechless. Your mouth will be stopped. And if you're thinking that perhaps God will accept you because of the noble things that you have done and the good and kind things that you have achieved during the course of your life, you need to think again. Look what Paul wrote in verse 20. Have a look, verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified, declared righteous in his sight. No one will be saved through the keeping of God's law. Why not? Because fallen man is utterly incapable of keeping it. We're not even remotely able to reach God's holy and perfect standard. No matter how hard you try, you cannot be justified before the bar of God's justice on the basis of your good works. The fact is, you violate the law continually in your thoughts, in your words, and in your deeds. You desecrate it without even realizing it. Therefore, the law does not bring about justification. It brings about condemnation. It does not set anyone right with God. The law requires that you love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that you love your neighbor as yourself. There's no one in this universe, past, present, or future, who has attained to that high standard with the exception of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, the opposite is true. Scripture teaches that we have a natural tendency to hate God and our neighbor. That is the natural inclination of the human race. The followers of Jacob Arminius, against whose teaching the canons of Dort were written, did not believe that man was wholly incapable of obedience to God's law. They agreed that people could not keep the law perfectly, but they argued that man, after the fall, was capable of at least some obedience by which to win God's favor. They said that fallen man is able to do a measure of good. One writer outlining the Arminian position said this, Man is able to give assent to the law of God and yield obedience, albeit only in part. He can be truly sorry for his sins, which are made known to him through the law, and he can hunger and thirst for righteousness, as pointed out to him through the law. These acts of his own free will prepare him to receive the grace of salvation. The Arminians maintain that the law prepares and disposes the natural man to conversion and faith. The writers of the canons of Dort responded with the words of Article 5. Listen once again. For man cannot obtain saving grace through the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, because although it does expose the magnitude of his sin and increasingly convict him of his guilt, yet it does not offer a remedy or enable him to escape from his misery and indeed, weakened as it is by the flesh, leaves the offender under the curse. Under the curse. 
Well then, if that's the case, if we cannot be justified by the deeds of the law, and if we cannot obtain saving grace through the law, how does the law relate to your life? Well, this brings us to point number three, the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law. When you discuss the purpose of the law, several things could be said. But for this morning, I want us to focus on one thing mentioned in our text. Primarily, one thing that is mentioned in our text, verse 20. Have a look. Paul says, end of verse 20, For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Or through the law we become conscious of sin. God reveals sin to be sin and the sinner to be a sinner through the law. Sometimes people say that the purpose of the law is to teach us how to be good. And that is certainly true for the child of God who wants to live a life of gratitude in service to the Savior. The law certainly shows us what kind of life is pleasing to our Father. For those who are redeemed in Christ, rescued through the cross, the law is a guide for the Christian life. But here in our text, one of the important purposes of the law is to convince us that we are sinners and that we need a Savior. Through the law, we become conscious of sin. The law is a mirror. By it, we see our human sinfulness. It highlights our weakness, failures, shortcomings, lack of faithfulness, and it shows us our depravity. One of the reformers said that the law is a mirror in which we contemplate our weakness, then the iniquity rising from this, and finally the curse coming from both, just as a mirror shows us the spots on our face. The law reveals us to be guilty. Thus, the law serves a very important purpose. For having been convicted of our sin by the power of the Spirit, we learn to seek the help of grace. The law drives us to Christ. It highlights our weakness so that by the Spirit we might seek the strength found in Christ. Brothers and sisters, while the Protestant Reformation was founded on grace and not upon law, still the law of God was not repudiated by the Reformers. Martin Luther, for example, said that preachers ought to preach the law as well as the gospel because unless the law is set forth clearly and unambiguously, people will never have an appreciation for the gospel. Luther said that before God will allow people to experience the sweetness and joy of heaven, he first dangles them, as it were, over the pit of hell so that they can see what their estate would be apart from the gospel. Following the Apostle Paul, Luther said that the law exposes our evil and therefore drives us to the gospel as the Spirit convicts us. Luther called this the evangelical function of the law. The evangelical function of the law is to drive us to the gospel. 
Luther said, you cannot preach the gospel without ever preaching the law. If all you preach is the good news and you never preach the bad news, the good news becomes no news and it is not significant to people. Congregation, God holds before us the mirror so that having discovered our sin, we might turn to Christ for cleansing from it as the Spirit enables us. The knowledge of our sin and corruption which comes through the law was ultimately intended to direct us to seek our salvation outside of ourselves in Jesus Christ. The mirror is provided so that having seen the dirt on our faces, we will turn from the mirror to the one who alone can wash away the dirt. If you look again at Romans 3, you notice that the very next verse, verse 21, reveals the answer to the question, how can a man be righteous before God? Look with me, please, in your Bibles to verse 21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. In Christ and only in Him can we be restored to a right relationship with God. The Apostle Paul provides us here in Romans 3 with a horrible description of man whose throat is as an open grave filled with a stench of death. But as evil, twisted, and wayward as we are, God says that a man can be righteous before God through faith in Jesus Christ. By his perfect obedience to the law, by his perfect obedience to the law, Jesus earned eternal life for his people, which we can receive through faith in him. It has been rightly said that the salvation of the elect rests not upon their fulfillment of the law, either in part or in whole, but upon Christ's fulfillment of the law. Brothers and sisters, isn't that the great message that is also declared to you every single time you come to the table of the Lord? Isn't that the message you receive when you participate, when you take of the bread and of the cup? The Lord's Supper is God's reminder to you that there is righteousness, life, hope, and cleansing in Jesus. He bore the curse of the law so that you may be delivered. He bore your guilt so that you may be guiltless. The Lord's Supper is a reminder that by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight, but rather we are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. By the measuring rod of the law, we are all complete failures, worthy of condemnation. But through faith in Jesus, we're justified. By the measuring rod of the law, we are hopeless and helpless. Demanding moral and spiritual perfection, it drives us to despair. But when we turn to Christ, we are justified freely by his grace. Article 6 of the Canons rightly says, 
What therefore neither the light of nature nor the law can do, God accomplishes by the power of the Holy Spirit through the word or the ministry of reconciliation. This is the gospel about the Messiah through which it has pleased God to save believers in both the Old and the New Testament. The gospel about the Messiah. The gospel about the Messiah. It is because of this gospel congregation that we can enter that courtroom without fear. We could stand before our creator and judge without terror. Jesus Christ kept the law perfectly. He loved God and his neighbor perfectly. He never strayed in, every, in any way. And his perfect righteousness is imputed to all those who embrace him by faith, transferred to your account by faith. And then for the believer who has been freely justified by his grace, the law takes on a whole new meaning, doesn't it? It now becomes the guide to a new way of life. It becomes the rule for the Christian life, the means by which we express our love and gratitude to God for his redemption in Jesus. First, the law reveals our ugliness and depravity. It convicts us that we are not right with God. It drives us to the only one who can deliver, Jesus Christ. And then, having received his righteousness by faith, we delight in the law, for through it we learn what pleases our Father. So congregation, I ask you this morning, have you been smitten by the law? Have you been smitten by the law? Has it convicted you that in your natural condition you are loathsome in the sight of God? Has it revealed to you your need of a Savior? And have you found perfect and complete refuge in the Lord Jesus? Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Thy grace alone, O God, to me can pardon speak. Thy power alone, O Son of God, can this sore bondage break. No other work save thine. No other blood will do. No strength save that which is divine can bear me safely through. People of God rejoice in his grace. Rejoice in the righteousness that he has freely imputed to us. Let us give thanks that the curse of the law has fallen upon our beloved Savior. And let us look to the future with confidence, for through him you can stand before the bar of God's justice, and he will say to you, wonderful words, not guilty. Not guilty. Enter into the, the joy of eternal fellowship with me. Thousands of years ago, Job asked, 
How can a man be righteous before God? A very good question. And there's only one answer. Not by the deeds of the law, but by faith in Jesus. Only his perfect righteousness can provide what you need to be acceptable to God. Then won't you trust him? And won't you praise the Lord for the righteousness of your Savior? Say with Martin Luther, Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness. I am your sin. You took on you what was mine. You set on me what was yours. You became what you were not, that I might become what I was not. What a gospel. What a savior. What a righteousness. What a hope. Amen? Let us pray. Lord, we come before you this morning knowing that by nature we are guilty sinners worthy of eternal condemnation. Your word has reminded us again this morning that we have nothing to present to you. As your people, we praise you for the righteousness of your beloved Son. We know that our Lord Jesus came into this world not only to die for us, but also to live for us, so that his perfect righteousness can be given to us, and we may stand before the bar of divine justice and hear those wonderful, wonderful words, not guilty, enter into the joy of your Lord. Lord, if there's anyone here who still thinks that perhaps somehow by what they do and what they merit and what they accomplish, they may be granted access into your kingdom, should there be anyone here who is deluded into thinking that somehow they can win your favor, we pray smite them by the law. Each one of us, smite us by the law that we may flee to the gospel and find refuge in Jesus Christ. Receive our praises as we conclude this service together. Praise you for the gospel, for that wonderful righteousness, for the hope that is ours forever in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.